0: Every believer may have and ought to experience this blessing. Without this, he does not live according to the will of God. David's prayer makes this clear. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He seeks as one who has already received the Holy Spirit. David asks that the Spirit not be taken from him. He feels that, although his former great sin has been forgiven, he still runs the risk of grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of grace who strives with sinners, but he is still the Holy Spirit, who can be driven away by the love of sin. David knows that our worldly ways, our fears, and our lack of attention to his workings can injure the spirit. He is grieved, and he withdraws his presence from us. This also happens when we are unfaithful in the use of the word and prayer on which his work depends. It is with the sense of this great danger of grieving the spirit that David prays, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. This petition is part of the prayer for grace. It is only due to the grace of God if the Holy Spirit is not taken away from believers. As often as injury is done to him, he is dishonored and has reason to withdraw. Were he not the Spirit of grace, he would certainly leave us. David hoped and begged that the Spirit of God would not withdraw from him, even when he deserved to be left alone. Lessons For the believer. There are two lessons the believer can learn from David's prayer. First, the Holy Spirit will dwell in the believer. If you desire to be led in the way of grace by the hand of David, you must keep yourself occupied with the promise of the Spirit. You must search in the Word of God for all the promises concerning the operation of the Spirit. You must know that this gift is presented to you. You must yield yourself completely to the Lord to experience this glorious grace. You must seek to live daily in the fellowship of the Spirit. You will discover that this is the highest blessing that can be experienced on earth. In the second place, the blessing of the Holy Spirit must be a distinct request in the prayer for grace. The person who wants salvation must feel that he is unworthy of this blessing. Every day he must realize that God does him a favor by not taking away his spirit. According to the sincerity of his desire, prayer, and faith, his growth in the Holy Spirit will take place. His communion with the Spirit will become more effective and realistic. The neglect of David's prayer will result not only in the loss of this blessing, but also in the suppression of other blessings that have previously been enjoyed. Therefore, we should pray with all sincerity, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Chapter 21 The Joy of Salvation Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Psalm 51.12a we have seen earlier that David spoke of a twofold cleansing. First, there was a judicial cleansing that resulted in freedom from guilt. It is the fruit of the divine acquittal on the basis of the atonement of Christ, the being washed in the blood of Christ. Also, there was an inward cleansing worked out by the creative, renewing energy of the Holy Spirit. David also speaks of a twofold joy, as seen in his psalm. Previously, he said, make me to hear joy and gladness, verse 8. This word stands between the repeated petition for forgiveness, verses 1 through 9, and relates this first joy to forgiveness of sins. The prayer which we have here in verse 12 teaches us that the joy of God's salvation is not only the desire of those just converted, It is equally destined for the Christian who is striving on the pathway of growth and sanctification. Joy and Forgiveness Let us think carefully about this connection. We have already seen that the first joy of the person who received salvation depends on the knowledge of forgiveness. The sinner becomes aware of his sin and cannot possibly rejoice in God unless he knows God as the one who has blotted out his sin. He knows that if he has not received this blessing, God is still his enemy and a consuming fire. Only when the soul comes to the cross and receives an interest in the atonement of Christ can the thought of the holy God fill him with gladness. It is fellowship with the reconciling God that brings joy. In like manner, the continuance and growth of the soul's joy depends on deepening communion with God. The very first act of God, the forgiveness of sins, begins this fellowship with the soul and imparts gladness. God's next work in the soul is sanctification. Through his work of restoration, he establishes in it the clean heart and the steadfast spirit, a life in the light of his presence, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This also brings much joy. Just as the soul cannot experience its first gladness without forgiveness, it cannot experience continued joy apart from a holy life. Just as the guilt of old sins robs the soul of joy until it knows it is forgiven, new sin that is not confessed fills the soul with darkness. The joy of forgiveness will not always remain unless it is confirmed as the joy of sanctification. In this experience, many Christians have had heavy losses through lack of carefulness or knowledge. When the first joy began to disappear, he did not know the cause or else he was unfaithful in not confessing the sad fact to God. He attributed the loss to God as a trial which he had sent him. If he had only asked for grace to be washed from guilt and be freed from the dominion of sin, then he would have discovered that with the progressive work of grace in the soul, a progressive joy would have been ministered to him by God. It is the joy of God's salvation for which David prays. There is joy in God's salvation. As we yield ourselves to God for it, we will enjoy it. So this twofold joy is one. We have already discussed this concerning the twofold of purity. It is also true with the joy. It is sin that causes pain and misery. It is becoming free from sin that brings light and gladness. It is one God who rolls away the curse and guilt of sin in one moment and then gradually makes the soul free from its power. The joy is also one. Joy and holiness. The person who rejoices in forgiveness ought to know that there is joy that is still sweeter, deeper, and more glorious than this. It takes place when the freedom from sin and fellowship with God are applied to living a holy life. The joy of forgiveness is the beginning for the newly born child of God. It is the milk of the blessings. The joy of sanctification and fellowship with God is for those who have grown up. It is the solid food, the ripe fruit of joy. Let this petition sink deep into your heart. The joy and blessedness of God are His perfect holiness. The joy of His children is also the joy of holiness. Without a clean heart and a holy walk, the Christian cannot continuously experience joy. The life of sanctification is joy. The way of a clean heart under the leading of the Spirit was once seen as a grievous way filled with groans and fears. God has changed it into a way of joy. At first, some sacrifice of the flesh may appear unwelcome and severe, but God has said that if you yield yourselves to living a holy life, you will find great reward and the joy of his salvation. In his service, it is only as the salvation of God is actually experienced that joy can be tasted. Joy is not a separate gift which can be received and enjoyed apart from further experience of God's salvation. It is the joy of that salvation, and it is tasted as you surrender yourself to that salvation and the redeeming, sanctifying grace of God who gives it. There are so many Christians who seek the comfort and joy of redemption and even pray for it, yet do not find it. Others who are less anxious about joy and concentrate on seeing and tasting the salvation of God and doing all that he requires are glad in the Lord and filled with the joy of his salvation. If you want to be glad, simply cling to the Lord, the source of all joy. If you want joy, surrender to the salvation of the Lord, first in the assurance of forgiveness, then in devotion to living a holy life. Then, with confidence, ask and expect a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. Chapter 22 Living in Freedom And uphold me with thy free spirit. Psalm 51.12b Grace restores man to a right relationship with God. It also restores him to a right relationship to himself. As a result of this, he comes to have right attitudes toward his fellow men. When grace makes the soul part of the favor of God and the spirit of God, the joy of God's salvation is shed abroad in the heart. As the fruit of this blessing, heart and mouth are opened to make others acquainted with the grace of God. It is this blessing that David now asks for from the divine mercy. He feels his calling and he is aware of his weakness. In the midst of these feelings, he asks, For help from above. Being a living witness, David realizes his calling. Every believer must be a witness and an example of the grace of God. He is obligated for the honor of God and the salvation of others to tell what great things the Lord has done for him. He knows that the living witness is better than dead legalism. Only when believers confess with boldness what God has done for them will the world be forced to acknowledge the work of God and adore His grace. Only by their speech and lifestyle can they prove that God is faithful. In the world they must give convincing proof of what grace can really do. A candle is never lit among men to be hid under a bushel. The eternal God wants his people, the light of the world, to let their light shine. David knew all this just as he confessed his sin and asked for redemption. He also prepares himself for the service of thanksgiving and of love. David is also aware of his own weakness, the feeling which he expresses in Psalm 116.10. I believed, therefore... Have I spoken, was the expression of his own experience. He knew that unless he had the spirit of faith, he could not know how to speak correctly. He realized that there was still in him the fear of man, as well as his own laziness and unfaithfulness. Therefore it was important to him to pour out a prayer for this gift of divine grace. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Grace to be a witness. David knew he could count on the grace of God to give him this blessing. Grace is prepared to put the soul in a position to praise God and confess his name in the midst of every duty to which it is called. This is a point that believers do not understand. They feel that the forgiveness of sin is an act of mere grace on the part of God. They acknowledge that the sanctification of a life must also be worked out by grace. They do not know that the free spirit with its power must also be the gift of free grace. They think that openly confessing the grace of God and proclaiming his goodness to others is the work they are expected to do for the Lord out of gratitude. But they do not feel adequate for this duty and remain helpless in their weakness and unfaithfulness, full of guilt and failure. Some people are not aware that grace not only begins the work of redemption, but also completes it. With the same certainty that they first prayed for forgiveness, they can also expect God to put them in a position to fulfill their vows of thanksgiving. It was with confidence that David prayed, Have mercy upon me, uphold me with a free spirit. Freedom to be a witness. The words, a free spirit, are very important. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, Second Corinthians 3.17. There is freedom from all oppression, fear, and doubt that can weaken the soul. Only a complete surrender of the heart to be filled by the spirit will bring freedom. It is only freedom before God that makes us free in our relationships to people. To have this full confidence before God, it is necessary that we look to him, fellowship with him, and be conscious of being surrendered to his will and service. The person who has this assurance in his heart before God never needs to fear any man. The continued awareness of God's friendship, nourished in fellowship with Him, will make us free from the dominion of the fear of man, and it will put us in a position to testify and praise God freely. Believer, pray for a free spirit. Grace will certainly give it to you. You hinder the work of grace in your life if you remain without this blessing. You are content with half of what the grace of God is prepared to do for you. You defraud grace of the honor due to it. If you remain satisfied without this gift, it is yours. It is your privilege to walk with a free spirit in the face of the world and sin as a child of the heavenly king. Live the life of grace. Receive the blessings of redemption as they are presented in the verses of this psalm. Let the joy of God's salvation fill you. In answer to prayer, this free spirit will also become your most cherished possession. If you do not have it, let your faith stretch out and expect it in sincere, earnest prayer. Uphold me with a free spirit. Out of the riches of the grace of God, you will Certainly. Obtain it. Chapter 23 Telling Others About Jesus Then Will I Teach Transgressors Thy Ways Psalm 51.13a The third part of this psalm begins here. The first part dealt with confession of sin. After this came prayer for the redemption David desired. Forgiveness of sin and renewal of the heart by the Spirit of God. Now comes the fruit of redemption. He will praise the Lord and make his grace known to others. As a servant of God, he will submit himself to the great work of teaching sinners God's ways. God's purpose for you. This is the goal of God with every person to whom he makes his grace known. For all God's children, this word holds true. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Isaiah 43:21. This agrees with the language of Paul. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. 1 Timothy 1.16. God must have honor from his work, and this honor is given to him when a ransomed soul praises him and speaks about the great things he has done for him. On earth, no one lights a candle and puts it under a bushel. Neither would the Most High God of Heaven do it. To every one He brings out of the kingdom of darkness, He says, "Ye are the light of the world." Matthew five fourteen. Let your light shine. Matthew five sixteen. If you have offered up this prayer for grace to teach others, then fix your attention on what the Holy Spirit can teach you from David's prayer. The design of grace is to make you a witness for the love of God and a monument of His wonderful goodness. Surrender yourself to this aim and plan of God. Say in His strength when you pray for grace, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. Motivated by love. God does not require this teaching as a debt you must pay in return for your redemption. If you will yield yourself to this work in the strength of grace, it will be your greatest joy to say, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways. When you think of the pit out of which you have been rescued, and the glorious salvation that is yours, your heart will be filled with compassion for sinners. When you think of the deep misery of others and how God's precious grace is ready to redeem them as it has redeemed you, you will consider it a blessing to exercise the privilege of speaking to them about Jesus. When you think about what the love of Jesus has done for you, and how much you have to thank him for, this love will motivate you. As often as you pray, O God, have mercy upon me, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. The desire will be awakened in you for others to know him as you know him. You can be sure that only then will they be truly happy then they also will glorify the Lord. You feel more than you can express in words how worthy he is to be known and glorified. The joy of telling others. The thought that a transgressor might be awakened to life, that this worldly person might be changed into an example of the grace of God through your prayer and teaching is enough to make your heart burst with joy. And This will not seem impossible if you look to Him to make use of your service. You probably think you are unprepared for this task. You do not know how you will ever be in a position to teach sinners God's ways. The joy and gladness of redemption are almost taken away from you for fear of having to face this awesome duty. Observe that this promise results from a prayer for grace. David merely says that if God shows him favor, restores to him the joy of his salvation, and grants him the upholding of a free spirit, then he will teach transgressors his ways. The Lord does not require more of you than what he himself will enable you to perform. To a person who has had his heart filled with grace, it is a joy and pleasure to make others acquainted with Jesus. The reason it is so difficult to speak about Jesus is that we are content with so little of the grace of God. We do not yield ourselves to be completely filled with it. Let the fear you feel convince you that you do not yet have as much grace as God is prepared to give. God will gladly give every soul so much blessing that his mouth will overflow because his heart is full. He will not be able to remain silent. Love for Jesus and for others will force him to speak. Go to God more earnestly with prayer for the full joy of the forgiveness of sins and for the full indwelling of the Spirit. Then you will also teach transgressors his ways. This is what God desires from those who have been enriched with his grace. It is through this service that you will discover true joy and the full power of grace. You ask where, when, to whom, and how are you to teach God's ways. The Lord will make all this known to you. The compulsion of love will teach you this. Love will seek and create opportunities. Are you ill? You still have a grand opportunity to teach others. Is your circle of friends narrow and limited? In your own house there may be someone who does not know God's ways. Are you simple and uneducated? The plain words of an ordinary person often find the fullest entrance into the hearts of others. The world is full of transgressors, and the heart of Jesus is full of love. If you have really tasted his love, you must admit that the most glorious work is being the messenger of this love to redeem those who are going to hell. This grace which made you born again is also able to open your mouth to speak this wonderful blessing to others. Every person who has been given grace is called to the work of teaching sinners God's ways. You will receive strength to carry it out with a willing, joyful heart. Chapter 24. Being used by God. And sinners shall be converted unto thee. Psalm 51, 13. Thee. We have seen how deeply David felt about his sin. If there was anyone who had reason to be ashamed, never to trust himself, and to be silent, it was David. If there was anyone who had reason to say he did not know what might happen to him, it was David. If there was anyone who, because of his unfaithfulness, had reason to say that he had no right to speak, it was David. No one was under an obligation to listen to him, because of his sin, his words would have little impact. How exalted David had been in other days, and how deeply he had fallen. In this psalm, David is in conversation with God and his grace. In his prayer, he already anticipates the glory of God's grace. He feels that the grace of God is more powerful than his sin. Since grace could take away his sin before God, it could also give him access to men. He feels that if grace redeemed him, the chief of sinners, and showed its great goodness to him, it would also be prepared to make use of him as a blessing to others. Therefore he not only promises, I will teach transgressors thy ways, but also believes that God will certainly bless his work. Sinners shall be converted unto thee. He trusts in grace for others as he does for himself. The grace which has blessed him will make him a blessing. I will teach transgressors of thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. There is power in the confidence that there will be blessing on our work. A person can work with enthusiasm and pleasure when he knows that God will give the increase. How can we increase this confidence? Let us carefully consider the source of our confidence. Confidence in God. First of all, remember that conversion occurs when certain things are done. I will teach transgressors. Sinners will be converted. It is not enough to mourn over the poor, unbelieving world. It is not even enough to pray for the conversion of sinners. Something more is needed. They must be taught. This teaching should not just be done on the Lord's day or handed over to the preachers of the gospel. Every believer must, within his own circle of friends, faithfully perform and carry out the promise. After praying, have mercy upon me, the promise must follow, I will teach." God is faithful to bring about conversion. What a marvelous change would take place in our churches if every believer would become a witness for God. Faithful witnessing would encourage the expectation that sinners will be converted unto the... Observe in what spirit we are to witness. David says that as one who is pardoned and has received forgiveness from God and the joy of his salvation, he will teach transgressors. How many preachers, Sunday school teachers, Christian elders and friends there are whose teaching has no power. They never see the fulfillment of the hope. Sinners will be converted unto thee. It is not from lack of teaching the truth, but from failing to speak about a living experience of disgrace. They teach from a knowledge of the truths of Scripture or refer to an earlier Spiritual experience. But this is not enough. If you want to see teaching and conversion of sinners, you must have a living, effective experience of the grace of God. Blotting out your guilt in a daily use of the blood of Jesus must be the joy of your soul. Your Christian walk must be carried out by purifying your heart and renewing a steadfast spirit in your inner being. With the prayer, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, your whole being must be one where Jesus lives in your heart. With the sincere petition, uphold me with a free spirit. This purpose must be renewed continually and acted on. I will teach transgressors thy ways." This must be your effort and your prayer. When you say, with the desire of this psalm, then will I teach. You may also add, Sinners shall be converted unto thee. Let your teaching of others be the fruit of his indwelling grace, then it cannot remain unblessed. Daily wash in the blood of Jesus, and seek the anointing of his Spirit. Live near to Jesus, and sinners shall be converted. Confidence in Prayer. Observe that this confidence must be nourished and expressed in prayer. David did not look to himself in his power. It was while he looked to God in prayer that David spoke those glorious words of faith. Speak this prayer on your knees with your eye fixed on God, who has shown you his grace. This hope is not too much to expect. I will teach, and sinners shall be converted." If at the beginning you do not succeed in using these words in full faith, then say the prayer again. Express the hope again to him who sits on the throne of grace. Begin with the first starting point. Have mercy upon me, O God, and climb this ladder of prayer by the various steps of the spiritual life. Make sure of each stage in your own heart until you come to this. I will teach, transgressors. Then the spirit of prayer, who has taught you to use all the other petitions, will enable you to speak this word with increasing confidence. Sinners shall be converted unto thee. Just as prayer and conflict became the power that led you to speak this word, so will it become your power to say to sinners, Sinners shall be converted. I will teach transgressors. Have mercy upon me, O God. Then will I teach transgressors and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Chapter 25 Delivered from guilt Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Psalm 51, 14a David has made a great promise. He is to teach transgressors God's ways. At the same time, he has expressed his expectation that, by his teaching, sinners will be converted. The words are scarcely out of his lips when he again feels how sinful he is and how it can only be through supernatural grace that such a result will ever be achieved. He feels that Uriah's blood has defiled him in the presence of God and man. If God gives him the perfect living assurance that he is fully acquitted from his sins, then he will be able to praise God in truth. A DAILY REALITY The living personal experience of grace is necessary if we are to tell others about Jesus. A person must not waver in the enjoyment of his own redemption. The memory of forgiveness and grace experienced at an earlier stage is not enough. Every day there must be a renewal of the divine assurance that we are redeemed by God. There must be a living reality of salvation as a present fact, a continually renewed and fresh exercise of fellowship with the God of redemption. The person who does not know God in this way cannot make him known to others. David felt this. How could he, the murderer of Uriah, stained with the guilt of blood, bring life to others while he must still give an account of the blood of Uriah? It is impossible for me to teach others if I do not know God correctly myself, and man does not know God correctly if he does not know him as the God of forgiveness. Moreover, this knowledge cannot be living and real if it is not continually renewed from heaven by the Holy Spirit. Every time that I give my testimony to teach sinners so that they will be converted, it must be, with the prayer, Deliver me, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. The Guilt of sin. When one considers the words of this petition closely, these thoughts will be more fully confirmed. Let us think about the word that is used here in this prayer. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. This is a term that we have not seen in this psalm. It is commonly used, not so much of setting free from sin as of deliverance from enemies that pursue and oppress us. An example of this is the prayer, Deliver Us From Evil, Matthew 6.13. It is from this point of view that David now contemplates his sins. He believes that God has forgiven them. He is also assured that he has been washed from them. Sometimes there are occasions in a believer's life when sins that have been forgiven rise up again and pursue and overtake the soul. God has forgiven them, but the person who committed them cannot forget them. He is afraid there will be a new outbreak of their evil. The great enemy, Satan, makes use of these times of oppression to utterly cast our soul down to the dust. In that case, there is only one remedy. God alone can deliver. Deliver us from the heavy burden of guilt. But He can do it. He can give us such a view of the completeness of His forgiveness and grace that we will be delivered out of the hand of our enemies and know that sin will have no more dominion over us. He can make us understand the full significance of the glorious words of the New Testament. He was manifested to take away our sins, First John 3, 5, in order that we may have no more conscience of sins, Hebrews 10:2. Through the Holy Spirit, God fully reveals to us the redemption of the Lord Jesus, so that we have the full answer to the petition, "'Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation.'" The enjoyment of such complete deliverance becomes the urgent desire to sing of his righteousness. If you do not know if you can celebrate God's praise, come and experience this blessing. Let it become a matter of living knowledge in your heart how glorious it is to be delivered by God. Then your mouth will sing the praise of this God. Personal Salvation This same idea is found in the very name by which David designates God, O God, Thou God of my salvation. It is because He is the God of my salvation that I joyfully want to praise Him. The personal relationship between God and men and the living assurance and experience of it are essential for this to take place. At the same time, this experience empowers me to make Him known. If you want to know how to succeed in calling God by this name, learn from David's example. In the beginning of this psalm, David was not prepared to use the proper word. He several times addressed the Lord as God, but not as my God. Under the power of continued prayer, as well as the constantly renewed plea for grace, his faith is strengthened. The Spirit of God has given him courage to hold fast to God. Thou art the God of my salvation. It is also the same with you. If with every sin, old or new, you cast yourself before him, pleading for the fullness of his grace, forgiveness, renewal, and complete redemption, you will be given courage in the midst of such prayer to say, with all the spiritual freedom of faith, the God of my salvation. May all who are looking for this assurance of faith come to a full understanding of this fact. It is not a matter for argument, but it is learned in prayer. The one who wants to really, truly say to him, Thou art my God, the God of my salvation, must obtain the privilege in prayer. When a person has learned to use this language of faith toward God, it will not be so difficult to use it toward men. It is impossible to speak freely with God, and yet hesitate to speak with people. As we speak to God in secret, we must confess Him in public. The principal characteristic of the good news to others is the confession, "...He is the God of my salvation." What he has done for me, he can also do for you. I speak from experience. What the word says, I confirm with all the certainty of personal knowledge. The God who has redeemed me will also redeem you. Chapter 26. The Meaning of Righteousness And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Psalm 51.14b. After the petition comes the promise. Grace does not selfishly desire personal enjoyment or safety, but gives itself to honor God and bless others. David's experience of fellowship with God as the God of his salvation causes him to praise God. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. The words of this promise are very significant and instructive. First of all, observe the main theme of this joyful celebration. It is the righteousness of God. It is as if this psalm of grace and redemption could not end without this word, in which the work of God in connection with our redemption is presented. The Holy Spirit uses the righteousness of God to indicate to us the origin, way, And fruit of our redemption. The righteousness of God. Righteousness embraces, in one word, an attribute of God, the gift with which we are endued, and the operation of this redemption in our life. For the person who wants to be saved, or for those who have been recently converted, the word grace has a beautiful sound and appears to be most attractive and encouraging. The growing knowledge of grace will always bring us to the righteousness of God, where the love of God has its foundation and the believer seeks his stability. Therefore, to the first promise to teach transgressors God's ways, these words are added. The resolve to proclaim his righteousness. Let us try to understand this word. First of all, Righteousness indicates the attribute of God that moves and guides him in the giving of grace. Grace in the forgiveness of our unrighteousness is not exhibited at the expense of the righteousness of God. Grace reigns through righteousness. It is from the righteousness of God that grace receives its power. So John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, or righteous, to forgive us our sins, 1 John 1, 9. Paul also says that God is righteous when he justifies the ungodly, Romans 3:26. Romans 4, 5. In the Psalms and prophets, this righteousness of God is frequently mentioned as that which his people especially celebrate and rejoice. Some have not been able to understand this, and think that in these passages the word righteousness must be synonymous with goodness. This is not the case. The righteousness of God, his character, which always does what is right, is the foundation of his throne of grace. Believers understand that the only way the unrighteous can be redeemed and become righteous is that God, the only righteous one, will communicate his righteousness to them. The Righteousness of Christ The phrase, thy righteousness, further means the righteousness that is given to the sinner in God's gracious sentence of acquittal. David had prayed, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. That whiter than snow can be maintained only in the possession of the righteousness of God. The New Testament makes it plain how this can be. The righteousness of God is brought to us by the Mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. By his obedience and suffering, Jesus has brought us an everlasting righteousness. Just as by the sin of the first Adam, death reigned over all that belonged to him, so through the righteousness of the second Adam, grace comes to all who cling to him. Faith is reckoned as righteousness to Abraham, and through all succeeding periods of Israel's history. It is the grace of God which justifies the ungodly, and that has been the hope and joy of his people. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified, and shall glory. Isaiah 45.25